Welcome to Don't Look Now, the podcast with your hosts, Jenny McDonald and Will Hegeman, coming to you this Tuesday, as always, with our stories of fun, adventure, history, weirdness, whatever the case may be this week. As always, Jenny is the the keeper of our topic. I have no idea what we're about to talk about. You at least have some idea because you've probably seen the name of this episode, but I haven't. So, uh, Jenny, what are are we talking about today? Well, actually, it's something that, um, I mean... We could all use a little bit of happiness this time of year, right? Sounds good. So I thought, what's the actual history of happiness? Like, is this one of those things that goes in waves? Is it pretty like set definition worldwide, the whole nine yards? Nice. And so I was looking into the history of happiness and came across some really interesting things. Nice. Um, what I'm not going to go into is like the full philosophical viewpoints of happiness as it's gone through the ages. Yeah. Um, instead, I'm going to talk about a much more unique American phenomenon. I was going to mention the one thing I know about happiness, or at least it heard, but we'll see if it comes up. Go ahead and tell me. Um, that was relating to the, the passage about the pursuit of happiness in our founding documents. That, that In that case, happiness has an actual definition in terms of like what things constitute pursuit of happiness. It's not just right. a generic phrase of like... You have the right to try to be happy. It's like, okay, you actually have the right to pursue, you know, land and whatever. I can't remember what all came in, but yeah, it was a, like, oh, that's specific, huh? I just thought it was a generic phrase, but. it's That's a uniquely American definition. Uniquely American. Yeah. That's super. Okay. So let's just dig into it. Yeah. All right. Cool. Because yes, that is a, a, the prime example, right? So there's actually like other countries perceive us as being excessively happy. Um, In fact, the Russians have an adage that says the person who smiles a lot is either a fool or an American. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I guess when McDonald's got to Russia in the nineties, one of the first things they had to do was try to train their Russian cashiers to seem like they were happy. And like, it was really hard for them. Like that's just not, the fake smiles is not a thing that a lot of countries engage in. And that's like when you're traveling abroad, one of the number one things that will put you out as an American. Yep. It works great for me because, you know, I, (laughs) I hate fake smiling. So like I smile when I'm happy, but like, I just can't, I can't smile for a camera. If somebody's like smile, like it's impossible for me to like smile for a camera without looking completely bizarre because i just can't naturally fake smile so i'm I'm down with that it works i keep telling people masks are my favorite things because people don't tell me to smile all the time it's one of the yeah. most obnoxious things that people can do to another person I hate it um so the thing is is that like happiness as an expectation of like being is yeah. pretty uncommon in other cultures so like east asian cultures aren't as bound to the rules of happiness that we are as well as some of the latin american cultures as well um and part of that is is that our opinion on happiness is super different 
expectations, right? So like in some cultures, happiness is dependent on the cultural connection, whereas for Americans, it's more independently. Yeah, we're very individualistic in our, it's me being happy specifically, not me being harmonious with my society or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. So that's a pretty big difference. Now, that's not to say that over time, other cultures have not become more similar in that manner Mm -hmm. and are registering happiness. There's actually a bunch of different scales of happiness measures, which is pretty interesting, but most of them are like, because you have universal basic human rights. Yeah. (laughs) You know, more freedoms you have, the happier people tend to be that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, But this commitment to happiness is pretty modern. So up until the 18th century, if anything, Western standards were kind of, a less excitable, more dour version of happiness. So like when you look back at our Protestant beginnings, um, the Protestant beliefs in the early 18th century were basically like, you know, you were not allowed to have joy or pleasure. You were supposed to be kind of demure and austere and not like showing all this exuberance and happiness because a lot of people viewed that as kind of a corollary to sin. Yeah. Because that probably meant that you were doing things you shouldn't have been if you were that happy, right? You're enjoying yourself that much. You've got to be up to the devil's business. Right. Now, like, it doesn't mean that they were unhappy, but it just wouldn't be viewed as happy in the way that we view it now. Yeah. Um, So this changed pretty dramatically during the Enlightenment. So, for example, Alexander Pope would, like, one of the lines in one of his writings was, oh, happiness are beginnings, ends, and aim." which that was never really prior to that a thing. Mm -hmm. Like that's not our aim. That's not our goal. Um, Even John Byron said that it was the best thing one could do to be cheerful all the time and not suffer with sullenness. So like they were really fighting against that depression. And it was also rather legitimate to try to seek happiness. So whereas previously, like you didn't do what made you happy, you did what was expected and what you needed to do. Yeah, this sounds like it's it's very much in line time-wise and everything with the kind of change to the ideal of romantic love as well. Like, yeah, it's, you pursued that as opposed to other aims in marriage or whatever, you know. Exactly. You did it because you wanted to be in love and be happy yeah. and what it made you feel good versus that's what was expected and your yep. duty. Yep. And around this same period of time, people also started writing about being interested in happiness and independence. So like individual diaries and things reported people looking for that kind of thing. And there were some pretty nasty things that happened. So for example, there was a yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia in 1793. And the uh, recommendations for survivors was to keep up your spirits and to avoid grieving. Like, (laughs) Just keep happy, keep going. Uh, And there's a list of people, like I said, that have worked on various things with happiness. But then the next big thing, as you stated in 1776, in the Declaration of Independence, all men have a right to the pursuit of happiness. Um, And that's a pretty big shift in values at this period of time. Um, So there was also an intellectual shift towards the higher value of matters in the world, um, a reduced commitment to traditional Christian staples, such as the original sin, 
uh, helped create this culture shift of happiness over time, which, you know, I do love me some culture shifts. So (laughs) this is just one of those, like, as people started to get away from the fundamentalist style religions and start to explore the world a little bit more, they started to have a surge in happiness. It wasn't an anti-religious thing, but now they were more cheerful. And the spin from the church was that people being cheerful was better for God. Mm -hmm. So if you had a happy congregation, God was happier. Um, And the 18th century also had some advances for the middle class. So we had things like, I don't know, heating in your home, umbrellas, um, (laughs) various things like that, though, that really did improve people's life, which made them happier. Uh, And then you also look at things like you get dental um, improvements in the 18th century. So people were showing off their teeth. And the best way to show off your teeth was to smile. <laughs> and there was also um, like shifts in happiness because the politics at the time was starting to go in a way that was making people happy. They were feeling less controlled, a lot of freedoms. They weren't paying all these taxes to the British, you know, those kinds of things. In fact, journalists from Britain that would come to the Americas in 1792 were surprised at how good the humor of the Americans was all the time. Like they just seemed like a cheery lot. And then like 40 years later, even there was another article from a British journalist that came to visit that was like super weird because Americans don't complain. They're always happy. Where in Britain at the time, it was more common to complain because their friends would then add in and then they would have like this whole complaining circle thing. Yep. In um, 1830s, Harriet Martineau, who is the first female sociologist was pretty amazed at how often Americans also tried to make her laugh. She said that, you know, while she was in America, people would try to make her laugh and tell these ridiculous stories to, you know, make you smile and just improve your mood so it was like a contagious thing as well and that's when the smiling american stereotype started um and one of the things that the americas did is their propaganda for why america was so great was state how happy everybody was there so like yeah not only are we a new nation but we're a happy new nation everybody smiles all the time we're always in the best of moods they're content like it's just big propaganda machine. So all of this contributes in the early emergence of modern Western happiness. Um, But there's also other things, of course, that happen along the way. But during the 19th century, commitment to happiness doesn't escalate. They were just important to Mm -hmm. daily life. Um, So things like being able to work towards the middle class um, was a source of happiness. There was also some complexity within that. um, But Part of that is, is like the, since you've moved from poverty into the middle class, you have the higher earning, you have social mobility. So it's not just you're intrinsically happy, but also like you're comfortable and you're not miserable because you aren't poor. Uh, And it was also convenient for people to believe then that there's no reason to be sad and lazy. Right. So like wealthy people loved it. Yeah. Everybody's happy. Happy people like to work. It works to their benefit. 
Um, and the happiness surge applied even more to family life because family was decreasing in its economic role because jobs were moving out of the home and into industry. And so happiness became more of an emotional responsibility. And this is when women started to have to maintain that emotional load, if you will, of happiness for the family. Okay. So it was, they were encouraged by their church and their communities to maintain a cheerful atmosphere to reward their hardworking husbands and then to also produce successful kids. (laughs) So they're asking them to carry this emotional toll to keep people happy. Um, And then they were also told both husbands and wives were told to keep anger away from your family life. You should only ever be happy at home. Your, your family is what'll make you happy. Yeah. Um, And part of that is, they allowed people to get divorced. (laughs) So when they were unhappy, they just left that situation. Um, They also took the efforts to reconcile death with happiness around this period of time. So that's when heaven became this very happy place to be. And um, they started to believe in this ideal of a blissful reunion with departed family members. So like prior to that, heaven wasn't like, it's this happy, perfect place. And, you know, all everything is wonderful and you're wealthy. It was just an existence beyond. This is when I really started to add that valuation to it. Okay. Um, So they had this redefinition of spiritual rewards and it was designed to help reduce the need for extensive fear or grief of the afterlife. So this is during that spiritual romanticism movement. So um, the context of it being, the ascending culture of happiness would explain the persistence in religious cultures. So like in recent, you know, like you even include your pets yeah. in mo- more modern times in this afterlife phenomena yep. to help you not stress about things. So, yeah, um, there was another surge in the United States in the 1920s. About this time, there was a lot of literature that stressed the importance of being happy and the personal responsibility to gain that happiness and how to do it. So things like 14,000 things to, to be happy about happiness is a choice, a thousand paths to happiness. Um, and then programs also things like happiness for black women, the ladder up secret steps to Jewish happiness, gay happiness, and things like that. Find happiness in everything you do. They really kind of pushed this literature as well at the time. Um, not only did, were there a bunch of books and articles about this, but the new efforts to associate work with happiness started. So they tried things to improve <laughs> your workplace. So, um, for example, sales, they found if you were cheerful, they sold more <laughs> because people responded yep. well to that. Uh, for example, in places like the Disney company, their corporate motto actually was to make people happy at one point. And this was a change because they originally felt that people were happy because they were at Disney. So then they had to like create happiness to keep it like a perpetuating cycle. Then Hmm. this is about the time when happy meals were created. Okay. Um, Nice. In the 1960s, the yellow smiley face, which took off in the face of the Kennedy assassination and apparently, like, within a decade, they made $50 million on the happy, like, drawing. Yeah, that's always wild to me. I mean, I, you know, I've never really thought of that as having a beginning until it kind of has its 
little fake beginning in Forrest Gump. And I, cause I never really thought of there being a beginning to the smiley face, but there definitely is. And you know, it seems wild. that it's a big moneymaker. So yeah. Yeah. Huge moneymaker. Um, another fully American invention in the sixties, that was absolutely ridiculous. A laugh track. Oh yes. In the, like, <laughs> the bane in the of watching older shows. Yeah. Track. Yeah. And so the idea was that people would laugh even when the joke wasn't really funny. Mm-hmm. If the canned laughter was already there, then it would help people to find the overall. Yeah. People were laughing. It must've been funny. Yep. Yep. I think so, they've yeah. shown that it works. You know, it's obnoxious when you like pay attention to it, but. Right. It's the same reason that basically people enjoy movies more when there are other people in the movie theater because everybody else reacting to something that's cool makes you think it's even cooler. So it's it's absolutely. Yeah, I gotta take a little sidetrack on that because we were I was just thinking of this because the kids hate laugh tracks. So it's like they're you know, like it's like the number one thing that like I at least grew up, you know, in the eighties and whatnot, and there were still enough laugh tracks around that it doesn't fundamentally bother me because it's just kind of a part of my childhood, but you know, we were just talking about how, you know, shows with laugh tracks, like they just cringe the whole time. And we were, you know, we were watching the IT crowd and, you know, there are people laughing on it. And we were just like, it's never bothered me in this show that there's a laugh track. And then we looked it up and it was filmed in front of a live audience and it's actual live laughter. And it's like, oh, that's why I never really noticed because it's actual legitimate laughter at the actual right places that you know someone would actually laugh and not be fill in hi honey i'm home ha 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 you know like, right you know, or like, the fake cheering yeah. yeah yeah so it was kind of interesting it's like oh when it's actually real you just don't even notice it unless you intentionally pay attention and then you're like oh there is a laugh track on this thing but it's not a laugh track it's you know people laughing right audience but yeah still it was it was funny so yeah well, and then the other thing that really helped with like this perception of happiness was that photography improved so much. Yeah. Because like remember original like 1800s Victorian era photography, you see zero smiles. Yeah. And part of that's because smiling hurts to hold too long. Yeah. So people would move before the exposure was finished. Yep. So that's modern photography. Okay. I was gonna say modern photography is so quick. Yeah. That people were smiling. Yeah, you catch people smiling and laughing. Like I was just thinking, there's a there is a cool old photo that I've seen. It gets brought up on Reddit and other things from time to time of like this guy and his wife that basically took a selfie, and it's it's from sometime in the 1800s, and they're just you know they look like normal people. They're actually like laughing and giggling and looking at the camera, and like you're like, oh, you know, you just never see those expressions on anybody's face. In that time period, it's just so shocking to actually see somebody that looks like a normal human with normal human laughter. <laughs> You're kind of like, oh, wow, that is that is different. Yeah, I love that picture. It's such a yeah. funny one. So I think they have like a picture, like a serious picture of them. Then they got another one of them cracking up or something. And it's yeah, yeah. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, because it shows such the stark contrast between normal behavior yeah. at the time versus like this unaccepted laughing and smiling. Yeah. Yep. So the other big shift was that happiness moved to childhood. It was an infectious disease that spread to children. <laughs> How dare it. 
Um, but that was pretty important because being a child and being happy did not go hand in hand because children worked just as hard as their parents. Yeah. Um, initially the enlightenment did not penetrate through to childhood because work and obedience were still really important for children. Um, it wasn't until the 20th century when child rearing manuals um, started to pop up that it became a thing and that they believed that happiness was as essential as food for children if they wanted to develop into a normal adult. Um, the purpose being that if you brought your kid up in each phase of their life as happy as possible, that then they would be a naturally happy adult and it would help decrease their anxiety over time. Mm -hmm. um, and that this was the key responsibility of their parent is to have this shift in their personality. Yep. That's a lot of pressure for a parent. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. They're actually finding kind of the opposite in a lot of ways. now. <laughs> it's like forced happiness is actually far worse than nothing, but yeah, you know, well, another example is like um, boredom shifted from being kind of undesirable in the forties to being kind of something good for kids. Now yeah. like, uh -huh. it's good for your kids to be bored. Yeah. It, in the past, it was, they were being kind of lazy. Yeah. Um, so now it's kind of good for kids to be bored. And then uh, the escalation of happiness is, you know, increased quickly after the 1930s. So part of this was the transition from manufacturing to white collar um, economies, because it would allow more opportunities for people to have happiness in their daily workplace. Because when you're in a mm -hmm. factory and you can't hear anything and you're just working all day and it's yeah. noisy, there's not a lot of room to sit and joke and tell stories. Whereas when it shifts to white collar and you're in the office, all of this like conversation and happiness is more likely. Yeah. Maybe. Supposedly. <laughs> Supposedly. As someone who does not want to go back to work in an office. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, just, yeah. Um, but yeah. And then the other thing was that advertisers found that if you could associate consumerism with happiness there you go. and the happiness of owning something that sales would skyrocket. Um, so yeah, that was imperative to marketing schemes to increase happiness. So the other thing is that um, happiness is also kind of an inborn trait. Um, culturally, it's like really common in the Americas, obviously. Mm -hmm. But there's other things, right? Um, so maybe it's inborn. But if you're not inherently a happy person, yeah. forcing, like you said, forcing someone to be happy is actually not good either. Um and cultures that stress happiness probably do have a lot of happy people, but that doesn't mean that that's the only way that people can exist either. Yeah. Yeah. And it creates a lot of stress on individuals when it's not. Um, the historical evolution of happiness also has limitations. So the translation of happiness into family and work expectations creates a lot of frustration and disappointment. Um, and it, it contradicts a lot of cultural norms. 
um, when there's too much expected, there's actually less actual satisfaction from it. Yep. So like, especially putting all of the weight of happiness on the wife's shoulders to be happy for the family. That's, that's a lot. And it didn't, doesn't work. I yep. mean, that's pretty clear. It doesn't work. Um, and it's also harder to confront big experiences. So things like death and, you know, failure yeah. because we're expected to be happy and succeed. So yeah. we don't know how to handle these vulnerable situations. Yeah, it's, it's also why holidays are so rough for so many people because there's this expectation of happiness around given holidays and, you know, true experience never meets that, you know, it's like, even if you have a, a good Christmas, it's not like it's the happiest experience of your entire life this year that you, you know, were with your family and did whatever. And that's the expectation for people. And everyone is constantly stressed out and disappointed. <laughs> yep. So the two big drawbacks, like you said, um, the gap of reality creates discontent. So, <laughs> Um, there's a risk that people will fail to explore reasons for dissatisfaction because they're being pressured to exhibit good cheer. Uh, they miss opportunities to improve their situation, especially in work, because they assume that the reason they're not happy is because of themselves, not because of their work conditions. Yeah. Um, and so those are some of the reasons why we need to break through some of that pervasive happiness to actually determine, is it actually the individual or is it the situation? Just because someone else is happy in a position doesn't mean everyone should be. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is that this culture that is totally bound with happiness makes it difficult for people to deal with sadness. Um, mm -hmm. So like one of the things that you hear about for sad children is that they had an unhappy childhood, yeah. but that's not a bad thing either. Yeah. Just because they weren't happy all the time. Um, and you know, what is their acceptable outlet? It's the same kind of argument for introverts versus extroverts, right? Yeah. We always see a billion articles on how to become more extroverted, how to deal with the quiet person in the room. Yeah. Where are the articles telling everyone else to shut up? <laughs> yeah. I've always wondered that myself, but yeah. You know, why is, why is being a super outgoing, whatever, somehow ideal, like I, <laughs> you know, if I, everybody seems to come from that, from this like leadership standpoint of whatever. And you're yes. like, well, that's good, but we don't need a room full of leaders all the time. It's nice to have somebody around that is fairly charismatic that does whatever, but like, that's not what everybody needs to be. Sorry. Like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Anyway. No, I mean, that's a rant for another day, but yeah, you know, it's like, Hey, some people actually have to buckle down and do the work, man. I, you know, Right. It's a really hard line. <laughs> stuff. Is, yeah. Right. yeah. Um, so yeah, at any rate, this is not the end of happiness, obviously. Um, most likely what with like you see with anything, you'll see periods of acceleration of happiness and then periods of time where depressions happen, like yep. great depression, and things will evolve and change like they always do. Yeah. So let's go yeah, down no, the rabbit hole. Cool. Sounds good. Here's some random ass facts about happiness for you, Will. All right. Money does not buy happiness. 
what we see instead are societies that expand their level of freedom and independence, saw boost in the quality of life of citizens that people prefer over money. Yeah, I would agree. Right. I mean, the whole reason that people seek money and think money makes you happy is money gives you the ability to do what you want. <laughs> I think that, you know, that's in a society where money brings freedom, that's why it brings happiness to some extent, but it's not, yeah. Exactly. Primary thing, but yeah. Once again, if I can afford to pay for heat, I'm going to be happier than if I couldn't afford yeah, to yeah. pay for that's heat. That's what right? I had seen various things where they were talking about, well, money correlates directly with happiness to a certain point and then it just stops. Right. Like once, once you have enough money to get all the basics taken care of and not be living afraid that you don't have enough money, then having more money doesn't really change your happiness level at all. You start buying more stuff and you got more expensive things and you do whatever, but your quality of life truly doesn't actually change happiness wise. But if you go below a poverty threshold, you are definitely less happy as your money goes down. And yeah, it's so the whole, Money can't buy happiness is definitely a, you know, <laughs> your whole one percenter argument of like, yeah, everybody that's got enough money doesn't matter. You know, yeah. One of those money doesn't matter unless you don't have. But Exactly. The other thing is, is that did you know that over time you actually get happier? I have heard that like that. I'd seen like happiness curves for age. Yeah. And that basically that it, it actually bottoms out about where I'm at right now. So it yeah. seems like basically in your, in your midlife, it kind of bottoms out because you have kind of combined stresses from both ways that you're, you're taking care of your kids, your kids are hitting the big life stages and your parents are getting older and you're taking care of your parents. And like those two things tend to push the middle down. But then as you get older, you get happier, which is Opposite of what, because everyone's like, oh, you're getting old and like, you can't do the things you used to do and it must suck and whatever. And it's like, no, actually like happiness levels actually go up with age, which is really cool. But Well, and I think that's another one of those like increase in time, increase in money, increase in like freedom. Yep. Yep. So yeah, that makes sense. Um. Phone calls are better for happiness than a text message is. I can imagine. Yeah. Those who communicate via phone or webcam are more likely to feel emotionally supported in relationships than a text message. Okay. But I'm not calling people. (laughs) But but yeah, you know, it's been a, a definite experiment in that the last few years and going back to as somebody who certainly self-identifies as an introvert, like being with people again, is incredibly nice. Like, you know, I, I would have been, you know, somebody decades ago that I t- would have totally been like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm fine going off on your Mars mission and not dealing with any other human beings again for 20 years. That's fine. Whatever, you know? And yeah, no, it's like, geez, after just, a semester of only seeing people on screens and just, you know, all satisfaction in my job just completely fell apart. So it's like, I, I need direct interaction with my students a hell of a lot more than I thought once upon a time. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a very interesting sort of thing to have change and see how much it really matters. But yeah. I mean, I guess at least you get the clarity to see that it mattered. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally probably would not have realized how much it meant to me until it's gone. And then you're like, whoa, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Here's something that I found really interesting. Happy places also have the highest suicide rates. Yeah. That- that's one, one thing that I have, I, you know, I've had this discussion a few times about like that suicide is primarily like a, you know, a first world problem sort of thing that it's like that, you know, people that are truly struggling for existence don't commit suicide. Like, you know, it's, it's an interesting sort of phenomenon, but. Yeah. So part of the reason they think is that um, it's, it's the, the comparison being the thief of joy syndrome is more the issue with suicide. Like everybody around me is happy and I can't be happy. Everybody around me gets to do this, but I can't do this. Yep. And yeah, it does make it hard for the people, which it's kind of a sad bummery thing. Um, and then long-term though, having a bad day is actually good for your long-term happiness. Interesting. Right. But yeah. part of that is, is that you need to have that combination of happiness and sadness. It first off improves your sense of mental health over time, but also you realize like that positive experience outweighs the bad and like, then you also can appreciate your happiness. No, oh, yeah. You know, the uh, most recent thing for me, you know, being re-reminded, I've obviously realized this before, but like, you know, those that aren't aware, I just went on a, a you know, basically K-State little brief study abroad trip to Ireland, which was awesome. And the cool thing was everybody tested negative for COVID the entire time. Everybody got to come back, which was great. And then like right after we got back, my wife started feeling sick. And we kept testing and she was COVID negative. So we're like, oh, she just must have the flu. And then I started getting sick and then I tested in and I was like COVID positive. And then we double checked her and she was positive. And now it's like, oh, so I've just gone through. I'm just about just about done with isolation for COVID sitting at home. And uh, but the interesting thing is this is the first time I've like had a fever in like two and a half years. I'd forgotten how freaking miserable it is. Like, you know, it's been so long that it's like, wow, I've forgotten how nice it is to be healthy. Like, you know, I've just been healthy all the time. And, you know, everybody always talks about, well, you don't appreciate your health till it's gone and stuff, but it's been a long time since it's been gone. Like I, due to, you know, isolation and everything else, like I really have not gotten legitimately sick in a long time. So it's like, wow, I forgot how bad it feels just to have a low-grade fever. I mean, it's not like I had a particularly bad bout of anything, but, you know, I had 99 to 100 degree fever and felt cruddy, and it's like, it's been a long time since I felt that bad. It's absolutely miserable. It sucks, you know? Yep. It's like, wow, it's so nice to not feel that way because I'm out the other side now, and I'm like, I'm happy. So it's like, hey, you know, <laughs> still got a stuffy nose and whatnot, but life is good. I don't feel like that anymore. So, you know, it's it's a definite boost to the mood after you're like, go through something like that. Cause you're like, wow, you know, whatever else is going on. My daughter being stuck in town after town, trying to get home from her European trip, you know, it's like, Hey, yeah, you know, it's, it'll be all right. It'll be okay. <laughs> she might not feel that way, but we're like, yeah, it'll be okay. She'll get here eventually. But yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I get it. Yeah. I get it. Cause I swear if it's been a while since I've had an upper respiratory infection because we've been isolated and masked and everything. And now every time I go into a building that smells like mold, I'm like, I'm just going to wear my mask. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh-huh. fine. Yep. <laughs> Cause I cannot, 
fathom the idea of getting sick again. Like, yeah, I know I will eventually get sick yeah. again. Yep. Yeah. I just don't it will eventually bite, but yeah, it's a, uh, you know, it was, it's been an experience. It's like, Oh yeah. Dang. Um, and then finally, because it's important to both you and me, coffee does increase happiness over time. <laughs> I can imagine. It does all people, kinds of great things for people's health. It's like, it seems to right? you know, prevent dementia and all kinds of good stuff. So, you know. So apparently people that drink two cups of coffee are 22% likely per day are 22% less likely to die over a decades period of time than those that don't drink coffee. Yep. More importantly, those that drink four cups of coffee are 64% less likely to die than non-coffee drinkers. Interesting. <laughs> I'd love to see the reasoning behind all that, but that's fascinating. Yeah. I've heard it was studies study kind of like that. It was a study done by Spanish never... researchers, so I'll send you the link. <laughs> yep, yep. But uh, that's good. That just yeah. means I need to up my intake a couple cups of coffee because I'm sitting around too. So, you know, I need to, I need to up my game. Maybe that'll get me back to health. I'm like 90% sure that it's just because like you're more awake and you're less likely to do dumb things. Maybe. Yeah. I'm sure that it helps that you're more awake. I always wonder with things like that, you know, the cause and effect side of it, there's lots of things that like, you know, people that do this are less likely to die. And it's more like, well, if you're healthy, you do that thing. But if you're not, you don't like, if you're chronically ill and having a horrible time, you're probably not sitting around drinking a whole bunch of coffee. Like, you know, right. So, yeah. And there's also like, as soon as you go from four cups of coffee to like anything above five, immediately those returns are lowered. Yeah. And that's because there's a positive correlation between people that drink more than five cups of coffee a day and people that smoke. Yeah, that's interesting. So, which so that increases your risk of death. So like, yeah. there's a there's a Goldilocks zone for coffee drinking. Apparently, <laughs> there you go. yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that's the funny thing because it's all results of all kinds of things that are more effects than causes. It's kind of like you know, it's like hey, everybody drinks coffee, and it just happens that the people that drink too much have these other behaviors that are bad, and the people that don't drink enough have other things going on that are bad, and it just ends up that's. You know, the people that are in this range just happen to be have a healthy lifestyle or something. It's weird, but yeah. People that do things in moderation tend to live in moderation. Yeah. yeah. It's this wild correlation. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. You know, that's, <laughs> that's why it's always fun teasing out those things because there's all kinds of, you know, fun statistical stuff and they're all based in something, but it's always trying to fun, trying to figure out what the mechanism actually is, you know, right. At least I always find that fascinating. So yeah, you can have 50 different things. And if you're modest in all of them, you're probably going to live a moderately long period of time. Yep. The second that you start doing anything in extreme, yep. you have extreme side effects. Yep. That so four sense. cups will, that's your, your limit. For limit. Day. All right. I'm good. Cause I'm only usually at maxed at about two. So Although those are two espresso drinks, so I don't know how that that's you know counts Every in terms of cups of coffee. Every one espresso is equal to two cups of coffee. All right, so I'm about I'm about four, I'm two to yeah. four a day. Then, so yeah, yeah, I am too. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> so that's my story. That's the story of happiness. Nice. Well, that's cool. Fascinating topic. There's yeah, there's so many things to tease out. Oh yeah, like I said, you could go into. The philosophy side of it, you could just talk about how you assess happiness. Like there's a lot. It's wild. Yeah. Yeah. No, that I just I did the brief lookup because I was thinking of, you know, 
what was it about the Declaration of Independence that, you know, led me to property? And it was the fact that originally it was life, liberty, and the pursuit of property was the original what was planned to be in there. And they thought that property wasn't all inclusive enough. So they decided to go with happiness. But the lion's share of happiness is being able to own property. (laughs) It's like that was the feeling was like, well, really, it's, you know, to be able to own property, but there's a little extra beyond that. We're going to go with happiness. So, well, and you know, I think that's probably good because the definition of property is so vague. Yep. So, I'm all, I'm yeah, especially if you want to get into horrifying things about what was considered property at the time. That, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Is that like, <laughs> like I don't know yeah. that I hate it. <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh man, but cool. No, thanks for the topic. That's awesome. And yeah. uh, it's good to see you. It's been, a, we recorded you. some stuff. I haven't actually like talked to Jenny in a couple of weeks because I've been gone. So, but uh, yeah, for anyone that can visit Ireland, I highly recommend it. Beautiful place. Cool people. Wonderful stuff. Good food. Good drink. All good. So yeah, I would cool. love to go. All right. Well, we'll catch you later. As always, thanks for listening, everybody. And we will catch you next week. Bye. Bye.